My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. For this episode, I'm going to take you to the state of Iowa. Now, I've only been to Iowa one time, and this is the time, what I'm about to tell you. And it was only for one oddity, and it was only for maybe an hour uh, of, of my life. We were doing a cross-country road trip, uh, starting in New Hampshire, the coast of New Hampshire, and heading all the way across the country and ending at a, a, whatever, a beach in Washington State. It was 2018, August of 2018. And my route actually didn't go through Iowa. Our route actually went from Wisconsin through southern Minnesota and then continued. But we were so close to the Iowa border when we were in Minnesota. And I just wanted to knock it off my list. I had never been to Iowa. And this seemed like uh, just I was missing an opportunity being so close to the border. So I quickly looked to see if there was an oddity across the way that I could see. And um, it had to be in northern Iowa. I couldn't go too deep into the state. Otherwise, it would mess up our our planning and our itinerary. So it had to be the top, just a dip into the state and then back up into Minnesota. Fortunately, I found one, a pretty amazing one, in fact, a sad one, a morbid one, uh, but an amazing one nevertheless. And it is the site that the music died. It was the death site in the middle of a cornfield of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. So what I'm going to do, I'll tell you that story of how these, who these three people are, why they died in the middle of this cornfield, and then I'll tell you what we found when we visited the site. The year was 1959. Rock and roll was nascent. It was just kind of being born, at least in the mainstream way that we knew it. And some of those pioneers included Buddy Holly, horn rim glasses, very blocky frames, curly hair suit, who we know for Peggy Sue, and that'll be the day. Very iconic. Also, Richie Valens, Donna, and uh, La Bamba. And the Big Bopper, who was a pretty big radio DJ back in his day, also wrote songs, and his biggest performance hit was Chantilly Lace. So these three icons of rock, they, I call them icons, Uh, they were very young at the time. So Buddy Holly was 22, the Big Bopper was 28, Richie Valens was 17, just a teenager, and they were going on tour the Midwest. It was wintertime, January, when they kicked off that tour, and... Whoever set up this tour did an awful job. Usually when you do a tour or even a cross-country road trip, you try to minimize driving between sites. And whoever did the itinerary for this uh, Midwest tour that they were on didn't. They would drive hundreds of miles to the next gig the very next day, backtrack, go around. It was just not a well-done trip, a well-done itinerary. And then on top of that, it was cold. It was wintertime. It was January as when the, was when the tour started. And they were on a school bus. So it wasn't some nice, you know, whatever, cushiony 80s rock and roll bus. This was a yellow school bus. And it was 1950s roads. So it was, you know, half a century ago before, you know, the interstates laced the country, I think. I don't know the history of roads. That might have been hyperbole. But it was bad. We know that. It was very bad, very cold. In fact, the bus was so bad, it kept breaking down. And the heater would go out. Buddy Holly's drummer caught frostbite while on the bus. 
just right in his feet. He had to be taken to the hospital. It was not a cushiony rock and roll tour. This was grinding for the music. Now, they stopped in Clear Lake, Iowa to do a gig. It wasn't even on their original itinerary. They just had a night they had to fill. And they were trying to squeeze in as many concerts as possible or as many gigs as possible to kind of free up some money. There's some backstory around Buddy Holly needing some money. Um, so he put this tour together. I forgot to mention the other band that was with them. So it was those three acts plus Dion and the, and the Belmonts. So it was a four-act tour. Anyway, they did the Clear Lake, Iowa gig, which they weren't supposed to do or weren't originally going to do. And then Buddy Holly just couldn't get back on that bus. He, they'd been 11 days. The tour had only been 11 days, less than two weeks. And he was already fed up with cold breakdown bus and just driving for miles and miles and miles and miles. So he chartered a plane. And that plane had four seats. One for him, naturally, he chartered it. One for the pilot. And then he had two extra seats. So he figured he'd give those seats to his bandmates. And so he went to them and said, hey, whatever. I chartered a plane. Uh, let's, let's not get on that bus. But then the Big Bopper and Richie Valens heard about this and said, whoa, 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 why can't we have those seats? So Richie Valens went to um, Buddy Holly's guitarist and said, hey, why don't we just flip for it? You know, just just good-natured wager. If I win, I get the plane seat, and you get on the cold bus, and if I win or you win, you get the plane seat. So Buddy Holly's guitarist, whose name was Tommy Alsop, he said, all right, let's flip. They flipped it. It landed on heads, which meant Richie Valens won the plane seat. And it's rumored that he said after the coin toss, this is the first time I've ever won anything in my life, which might have been true. He was only 17 years old. Uh, Tommy Alsup, 20 years later, would open a restaurant or a tavern called the Heads Up Saloon in honor of this one single moment in his life that could have gone way different, all because of a coin flip. He ended up living into his 80s, his mid-80s. So he had a long, long life, all because he lost a coin flip. So that puts Richie Valens on the plane with Buddy Holly and the pilot. One more seat to go. The big bopper wanted it. He was sick. He had the flu. Uh, it, it didn't take. He didn't have to flip the coin to get the seat. He just really appealed to the humanity of Buddy Holly's other guitarist. And he said, fine, you're sick, big, and gave him the seat. Turns out that guitarist was Waylon Jennings, the famous Waylon Jennings, or who would go to become one of the greatest country singers of all time and also the voice of the Dukes of Hazard. But at the time, he was just a kid, just a backup player for Buddy Holly, who needed a band at the time. So Waylon Jennings lives and becomes a, a, an idol of music because of this one moment where he just gave his seat up to, to the Big Bopper. Now, it's said that when Buddy Holly realized the two seats he was offering got turned down by his bandmates, he said, well, in a joking manner, I'm sure, uh, I hope you guys freeze on that bus. And then Waylon Jennings is supposed to have returned... I hope you crash in that plane. So a little rough, a little rough, but there is a second story around this. So that's the generally the, the story that's told, and that's canon or whatever the, the word is for this. But Dion DiMucci from Dion and the Belmonts tells a slightly different story. According to him, Buddy Holly chartered the plane and then came to the stars, directly to the stars, the headliners, came directly to Richie Valens, came directly to the Big Bopper, came directly to himself, Dion DiMucci, and said, hey, I chartered a plane. Why don't we take it? You know, we're the headliners. We can get there early, you know, rest up, do our laundry, and not have to be overnight in a, in a cold bus. Uh, and in Dion's account, he said he turned down. So one of them had to turn the seat down still. There's still only four seats, and there were four stars and a pilot. So one of the stars had to, one of the headliners had to turn down the seat, and Dion did it. And he said the reason why he did it was because it cost 36 bucks, And that was how much it cost 
for his father to pay a month of rent or something like that. So it, was, it, was a, it was a month's rent, 36 bucks to Dion. So he couldn't fathom buying the seat for two hours or whatever, however long it was. It was I think it was shorter than two hours just to, <laughs> again, just to avoid a night in the bus. So he turned it down for that reason. And then, you know, the other, the other headliners got on the plane. So that's not really the story that most everybody else tells. So who knows? But I wanted to bring that up as well. All right, so now we have the fateful flight filled. We have the pilot, Roger Peterson, flying, 21 years old. Buddy Holly, 22 years old. Uh, the big bopper, J.P. Richardson, 28 years old. And Richie Valens, a tragic, tragic 17 years old. So they get in the plane. They're supposed to head. I think the next gig is in Minnesota. I think the plane, though, is going to Fargo. They get in. It's nighttime. It's after midnight. So it's February 3rd, 1959. It's dark, wintry conditions, not awful conditions, but still a little bit of snow. Despite his age, the pilot uh, had flown in the area under all kinds of conditions, knew, knew it all pretty well. And when they took off, they didn't get five miles before crashing into a field at full speed, 170 miles per hour right into the dirt. All three musicians were thrown from the plane, instant death, and Roger Peterson got caught up in the fuselage, also instant death. Nobody knows why that plane went down. Peterson was a young pilot, but he was a very experienced pilot, especially in that area. Most of his flight hours were in that area. So there's a couple ideas. One is that he just got confused. He thought he was ascending when he was actually descending, and that was why the plane crashed with such a high rate of speed, and that's terrifying. For some reason, in my mind, just being that confused and thinking you're flying to safety when you're really flying to your death is just almost worse than a regular old crash. Other theories are that... He got confused because the gyroscope in the plane was new, or gyro, or whatever that whatever the uh, that, that equipment's called, was a new kind of gyro where it worked exactly the opposite of the conventional gyros. So he was just reading it backwards and thought he was ascending when he was actually descending. Another theory, which is more conspiracy theory than anything else, was that there was a commotion in the plane. And somebody shot a gun. I believe a gun was found in the wreckage. Buddy Holly carried a gun. He was from Texas, whatever, carried a gun. So the idea was somebody shot the gun. There was supposed to be bullet holes in the pilot seat. Everybody crashes. They tested that theory a little bit in 2007 when the descendants of the Big Bopper disinterred the Big Bopper. They dug him up after 50 years to see if there was any suspicious things (laughs) about the corpse. Turns out, no, his, all of his bones are smashed. It was instant death from crashing into the ground. So it's a very tragic moment, very big. Like I, it was before my time, honestly. Um, I hope you guys know that. It was way before my time. I was not even born <laughs> for decades when that happened. Uh, and what I want, wanted to do was kind of like pick three pop stars and try to use that as an analogy for how big it was that these three pop stars, who were all stars, but they were also just at the very beginnings of their career. They should have ascended way higher and higher and just you know, continued to do so. But I, I don't know pop stars today. I couldn't pick three pop stars and say, these are the equivalents. I can't even pick three famous ones that are famous right now. So I'm at a loss. I also don't think you could do that analogy even if you knew three famous pop stars because it's so different today where whatever, a celebrity or artist, a uh, musician dies and then for six hours, Twitter lights up with rips and RIPs and that's it. You move on to the next thing. Uh, this lingered. This was big news. There was nothing else to distract. More tragedy came out of it, in fact. Buddy Holly's wife was two weeks pregnant, and she he left her at home, obviously, so he could go on tour. She learned the news of his death from the news, from TV. And she said, 
that caused her to miscarry as a result. Both the obviously the tragedy of the moment and the way she learned it was just too much for her. Obviously, these days we have rules against that family, family first than TV. But a massive, massive tragedy that became mythic when Don McLean in 1971 came out with the song American Pie, which everybody knows, right? And took inspiration from the death of these three musicians to write it, right? It's, he called it the day the music died. That was the day, that was February 3rd, 1959. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost all caught the last train for the coast the day the music died. Obviously, it was, it was, it's a bigger song than that. It talks about entire decades of music, the 60s and the 60s, basically. But it all kind of starts with that moment in 1959. And obviously, there's a thousand different interpretations of the Don McLean song. But one of them is that what he meant by the day the music died was that's the day that pop music lost its innocence. After the death of these three stars, music changed. Our idea of rock stars changed. Our idea, our relationship with music changed. What it did was different. It was no more, you know, O'Donna and Peggy Sue, and it was, you know, the 60s. So very interesting, very interesting song, um, very interesting moment in time. And again, really, I should have no connection to it. Again, it happened decades before I was born. When, when I was you know, in the 80s, when I was a kid listening to the music, those were golden oldies. That's how far, it was almost ancient history to me. Which, by the way, if you count the time between the 80s and the 50s, what a golden oldie right now is the 1990s. If that wants to make you drive a plane straight into a cornfield. But American Pie was always a big, big song for me, big song for most people, very mythic, um, and, and, and turned that event into something bigger than just a tragedy. So I was always interested in it. Um, I'm interested in death sites in general, especially death death sites of famous people. And this death site is marked, which again puts it right firmly in my in my morbid radar. So finding that this site was just in North Iowa in Clear Lake I was like, all right, we're definitely going to go see this. So we detoured out of Minnesota uh, into Iowa, and you know the roads started getting dirt roads, cornfields. The corn was almost full height. This was August; it hadn't turned brown yet, but it was it was green and full height. And usually when I'm chasing oddity and I end up in that situation of dirt roads and fields in the middle of nowhere, I get worried. I get worried that A, maybe I'm getting lost, that my GPS is going to conk out, that my car can't take the dirt roads. But in this case, I knew this is exactly right. We were going to a cornfield, so we were headed in the right direction. Also, it's really hard to miss when you come up on it because the path to the memorial, it's a, the path is mown through the cornfield when the corn is high. It's marked on the road by a pair of gigantic Buddy Holly glasses, those horn-rimmed, thick frame glasses on a pair of pillars that everybody signs. They sign the pillars and they walk in. When we got there, there was a few people there. They were exiting that row uh, that's mown in the corn. And then as we started getting ready out of the car, because I was there with my family, my two daughters and my pregnant wife, <laughs> when you're a family, getting out of the car is a mission in itself. You got to get the shoes on the kids because they've taken all their shoes off and socks off. You got to brush the Cheerios off them. You got to check diapers. It's it's a big, long, it's almost like um, uh, going on a spacewalk. You know, you can't just step out the door and go. You got to get prepped and whatever, have, have mission control tell you things. That's, that's what getting out of a car with the family is like. And while we were doing that, this other car pulled up and out stepped two uh, elderly people, a couple. And, you know, eventually we all kind of took off down this row and walked down to the actual memorial on the site where the plane crashed. It's not a very long walk. It's a short little ramble. And when we got there, it's a it's a metal guitar um, and three metal records on it. And each of the records has one of the famous songs from the three musicians. The Big Bopper had Chantilly Lace. Peggy Sue was on Buddy Holly's record. And then uh, Richie Valens got Donna. That's there, and then beside that is another metal marker, a set of wings with with Roger Peterson's name on it. So it's a memorial, obviously, to all four people who lost their life in that cornfield on that spot. And it was it was um, 
I want to say well-visited, and the way you judge it, obviously, is the stuff people leave behind. They do it with graves, too. Um, in this case, instead of, like, rocks and shells on the top of the grave, they were left flags and beads and photos and a sealed can of seltzer. I don't know what that was about. Horn, horn rim glasses. People were leaving glasses uh, in memory of Buddy Holly and flowers. So this wasn't a forgotten site, rusted over and overgrown. It was well-attended, especially for being out in the middle of a cornfield. And then this moment happened, this very beautiful moment that kind of seals this adventure for me. The woman, the elderly woman, must have been, I think, 70s or 80s. She started talking to my youngest child, my youngest child, not in the womb, who was, I think, three or four at the time. And they had this connection. I see this sometimes with the very elderly and the very young with this beautiful moment where they connect. And it's just like time and generation and years just kind of become a real thing. And you're just really touching. It's nice. I love it. I love seeing my my kids interact uh, with the elderly. And... It was beautiful. So they they immediately had a connection. And because of that, we all started talking. And it turns out this older couple was in town. They weren't really even in town. They were nearby for some kind of convention. I can't remember for the husband. He was he had some hobby. And it wasn't, it was like, I want to say an hour or two away from where we were. But as part of them going to this convention, the, uh, the, the wife, she told us that she wanted to come visit this because she was a fan of Buddy Holly back in the day when he was alive. She was one of the kids, uh, young girls who was, you know, screaming for him over the radios or however it happened back then. Um, and so this moment for her was huge and nostalgic and took her right back to childhood and music, the way music does, right? These days we do it by just drinking and, and watching YouTube. But here's an opportunity for her to go see this death site of somebody who meant something to her, filled her childhood with music. And meanwhile, you know, there's my kids there, right? my young kids who have no idea what's happening at all, right? So it's one of those situations I find myself in all the time where I have to explain to my kids why we're at the spot and I have to be very sensitive, usually it's morbid, and explain why we're here, why it's important, why it's interesting uh, in a way that's not like, whatever, too overwhelming or too boring or too too anything. Sometimes I don't say anything. I just say, I just want to see the site. And this was one of those hard ones. Like, how do I tell them we're seeing the death site of a musician who lived half a century ago whose music is that far away from me? But they got to see somebody who was a fan of the music being there. And that was, that was brilliant and lovely. And, I, and that was my favorite moment of seeing this, of being at this, at this memorial on this death site, is seeing this connection between the very, very, very far past, this living connection between the far past and my children, who I guess are the future. That's it. You know, we walked back through the rows to our car, got in. I'm sure we tried to find some Buddy Holly music to listen to. I'm not sure if we were successful. But I'm sure we tried and left, went back to Minnesota and back to our regularly scheduled cross-country road trip. A couple things before I leave this episode. Uh, one is my next book, The Smash Man of Dread End, a middle-grade horror novel that I hope is horrific enough no matter what your age. I want to call it an all-ages horror novel. It comes out in a month. August 17th, it comes out. And I'm doing this thing right now for the next month um, that if you pre-order it, doesn't matter what format, audiobook, uh, hardback, um, ebook, doesn't matter from where, your bookstore, Amazon, doesn't matter. If you pre-order it and then email me your receipt for that pre-order at OCKERJW at gmail.com, OKERJW at gmail.com, send me that screenshot. I will send you, free of charge, two things. One is an Otis sticker, which is... Whatever, it's a sticker, but I've never made an Otis sticker before. This is my first ever Otis sticker. And it's a three inch on its side square that's basically the podcast art. So if you're listening to this, just look at the art in your hand on the phone or on the dash- dashboard of your car. It has the, you know, the Fiji mermaid and it has the skeleton in the, in the coffin and it has odd things I've seen. I will send you that sticker. 
And then I'll also send you a autographed book plate that you can put in. If you have one of my books, you can put it in that. And if not, you can do whatever you want with it. Actually, you can do whatever you want with it regardless. But it's meant to go be put in one of my books so you can have an autographed book, even if I've never met you or we've never, I've never personally given you an autograph. It's cool. It's it's shaped like a gravestone, like an old New England gravestone with a skull and, and wings on the skull and just has my autograph uh, right in the blank space, right in, <laughs> right where the epitaph would go. Here lies J.W. Oker. And that's it. All you can do is send me that screen cap over email and I will send it right to you. You'll get it. And then the book comes out in August. You get the book and you know, you'll help me out. Pre-orders help me out a lot. I really want this book to do well because it's probably my biggest stage, biggest publisher, biggest opportunity. And if it does work out, it, it opens up new things for me. If it doesn't work out, then I go back into coal mines, I guess. The other thing is uh, the Patreon. So if you want to support the show, support anything I do, uh, the Patreon is the way to do it regularly. If you don't want to buy a middle grade horror novel, you can do it through the Patreon. Support me through the Patreon. And for that, for as little as a dollar a month, you'll get swag, but you'll also get uh, a newsletter. Every month you get a newsletter. If you do $3 a month, you get two newsletters a month. And if you do the $5 level or above, you'll get a newsletter every single week that's full of my adventures that week, stuff I'm doing, access and updates to the Otis map of oddities, uh, all kinds of things. It's a full-on newsletter. It's not just, you know, a couple paragraphs of me saying, hey, buy my book. It's a full-on newsletter. Oddity news, everything. So those are my two big things. Smash Man's coming out. Um, so if you pre-order it, I will give you free stuff. And then hit me up on the Patreon. Patreon. It's the hardest word to say. Patreon. Um, if you're looking to see more stuff from me and just, you know, be nice to me. But that's it. That's the episode. The Death Sight of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, The Big Bopper, and Roger Peterson. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast.